From 11FS, I'm David Greer, and this is Fintech Insider News. This week, we bring you the Apple Card has finally launched. Ooh, shiny. Global fintech investment is down from 2018, and JLo and A-Rod are investing in Acorns. Did not think I was going to get through that one. All this and much more on today's show. Welcome to episode 351 of Fintech Insider. Today, I'm joined by my colleague and co-host, Will White, previously COO of Loot Fame, and now sitting within our consultancy team here at 11FS. How's it going, Will? It's going very well. You have a good week? Yeah, it's been all right. It's been a lot, but it's been amazing. You're slowly getting up to speed with all things 11FS, aren't you? Yep. 10 days of, like, industrial level 11FS. It's been great. Beavering away. Um, as for me, I think I'm just about coming to terms with jet lag, uh, like having come back from San Francisco. If anybody watched F- uh, Fintech Insider on air last week, you would have seen Lisa Gansky and me, bizarrely me drinking espresso martinis at 10 a.m. in San Francisco, which I did have to have a nap afterwards with. Um, but we had a really, really good trip, so lots of fun things to come from that. All right, as always, we are not alone. And this week, as always, we're joined by some super-duper awesome guests, uh, all making their return appearances, which is awesome. So first up, we have Emily Nicole, who is the technology editor at CityM. How's it going? I'm doing well. I hope you're not going to fall asleep on us today. Do you know what? I've just about come to time. This pint's going to sort me out as well, so I'll be fine. You know, <laughs> It's like my po- version of Popeye and spinach. I'll be good. Uh, returning, we have Marco Wentworth, who is the CEO of Penta now. How's it going, man? Good. Thank you very much for having me again. Uh, well, it's good to have you back. And, and wearing, I mean, slightly different colors, but I imagine still all of the same energy, right? Absolutely. Even more. <laughs> well, let's see where we get to right yeah. on that. <laughs> all right. And we also we have Olivia Vinden, who is the director at Alpha FMC. How's it going? Yeah, very good. Very excited to be here. Welcome back to the show. Thanks so much. All right, guys, let's get on with the news. First up, we have, I think, the story of this week, both positive and many, many mocking of, is that Apple Card launches for everybody. Now a credit card is as private as cash, apparently. So this is over on Forbes. Apple Card has finally launched, and as we know, it's a credit card with Goldman Sachs and processed by MasterCard. Uh, It has no fees that they're talking about, uh, at least, uh, and is intended to be used primarily without its physical card. I mean, the physical card, turns out it's not meant to be used with lots of different things, isn't it? But I imagine we'll be sort of coming to that shortly. Um, Apple doesn't know where you shop, they're saying this, but um, actually I know they're going to be sort of passing on and uh, trying to work very closely with Goldman Sachs to provide that that data up. What do you think, guys? Like fancy card, good app? Who wants one of these? Well, I think I was quite interested because everyone in my sort of, um, sphere of, of understanding what cards they have has a BA um, Amex card, and that's been very much the card that everyone has. But this is the first time that I really looked at something and I thought, am I rewards really falling with BA and actually 2% on everything I spend on my business account it could it could end up being quite meaningful I was a bit annoyed with the no fees though because there is an APR and they didn't make that obvious and I think it's between 13 and, and 24 something like that um, and I think they, they shouldn't have gone with the strong no fees when when that's sitting underneath it yeah it's fundamentally not true isn't it? <laughs> Which, uh, if you're going to put it in your advertisement as no fees and then there are actually fees it seems like a bit of a you know Maybe, um, you know, mis-selling hasn't quite come to technology companies, has yeah. it? But we'll see where they get to. And also on the no fees, I think they, they said that they, will, they won't charge you a minimum payment each month like traditional credit cards. But if they've got no minimum and they've got the APR, that could end up with people ending up with quite big balances that they're not expecting. So Agree. Uh, what do you think, Marco? Fancy metal card? Do you want one of those? 
Definitely not. Uh, not because of the metal card, but because it's Apple. So that's. Uh, but this is a, a little game we have on um, um, between the two of us. But um, I'm, I'm fully agreeing here. The point is, um, if they're not being straight when it comes to the costs, how straight are they being about the information they're using? Mm. So. I wouldn't believe that, that Apple is in this just because of making some money. I think they're in that because there is something more for, in, uh, for them in, in the long run. And this has to be based on, on, on data. So uh, I'm, I'm quite skeptical when it comes to no data, no fees. And with the fees we have seen, there is some. Yeah, I think, you know, they've sort of come out, I think with a little bit of digging, you can see that, you know, payments right now is about 1% of their overall revenue total, but essentially getting them into a place where, I mean, the card is a nice novelty, but that, that's not why they're doing this. They're essentially doing it so you use Apple Pay a lot more. Uh, and the one thing that, um, you know, Apple does love is like a walled garden ecosystem to a certain degree. So, you know, the, the harder and harder drugs that they can get you on, if it's not aluminium, it's titanium, right? Uh, so getting you sort of, deeper and deeper into that walled garden. I'm saying all this with Apple stuff all around me, though, so I'm definitely going to have one of these. I mean, it's really pretty, but the interesting bit for me is actually the daily cash. Mm. It's the one bit no one's concentrating on. Mm. It's a Green Dot card. So you're actually signing up to a, to a Goldman's uh, credit card and the Green Dot prepaid card. Yeah. So you who, get cash who back. advertising insanely a large amount over in the US right now. Oh, are they? Yeah, like, oh, okay. uh, you know, in between watching Fox News for fun, uh, I was seeing lots <laughs> yeah, of green dot. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like entertainment on Fox News. It's kind of interesting because you get the cash piece and then you start spending the cash and then one day they say, why don't you just load up the cash piece? And then they kind of own you and it's really clean and tidy. Mm. I, I worry a lot more about also like they've gone live and already a couple of people are having trouble with customer support and things have gone wrong. Mm. So I think they might have done all the nice plumbing stuff, all the pretty bits, but maybe the reality. And no one will care that if it's gone wrong with Green Dot or it's gone wrong with Goldman's or someone wasn't there at the right time. It's just Apple screwed up. Yeah. So I think yeah. there'll be a lot of that over the next few weeks. I mean, it's going to be, I think, both Which from, is from my old CEO background. <laughs> I'm just thinking, I mean, <laughs> on the other end, it's really pretty. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it's is really... It? I think, it, yeah, I think the apps, like, they've taken the best in class. I mean, the, the card is silly. I mean, it doesn't work with denim and leather, apparently. Yeah. You know? Use <laughs> so, a special microfiber cloth to keep it clean. Right. But it's, I think that's mainly because it's also white, which is just a bad choice if you're thinking about something you're going to be using all the time. Anybody who's ever had a white phone case will know, like, it's yeah. not a good colour to choose. So style over substance is definitely winning there. But, I mean... Metal cards are definitely a thing in the UK. A lot of our challenger banks have them and nobody's complained about not being able to put it next to their other cards or getting it scratched or denim dyeing it a different colour. So maybe Apple will figure that out and it won't be as funny as it is now in like five months time. I mean, we just, me and Marco just came from a meeting with Simon and he said they'll, they'll offer some sort of 400 pound adapter to keep it clean or something along those lines, you know, <laughs> so maybe like a particular rubberized case or something. But I mean, I, I um, I've, I've had a play with the app. I've ha held one of the cards. I didn't want one until I did that. And that actually, I find that with almost every Apple product, if I'm honest with you. I'm like, I'm not going to buy a new iPad. I've touched a new iPad. Now I desire a new iPad more than anything on the world. So it's it's a strange thing that they're very good at doing is creating, taking something as boring as a credit card and making it desirable. Like that is just this an is, amazing thing. May, may I weigh in here? This is um, five years ago, uh, ago. I would completely agree with you. Today, 
uh, that was, uh, what was it, 10 years ago or five years? Said, I don't know, when the first iPad came out, I bought the case for the iPad before I got the iPad. So I was really crazy about the products getting to me. You, you bought the case it, before you got the iPad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really, You're just sitting there in the door waiting. It, yeah. it needed to be protected <laughs> before I even got it, right? So this, um, at, this, the, at this time, it was aspirational. It was really, uh, everybody was going crazy about it because of the design and stuff like that. Today, to be really honest, the only thing what I like about Apple still is the operational system. Um, uh, otherwise, I would switch immediately to a Samsung or a Huawei, whatever. The, 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 the hardware has become much better when it comes to the phones. Um, I just like the, the, the iOS much better. So this has changed. And that's why, um, f- from my perspective, they are, they are on, on, a, on a train where things are going in a, in a direction where the, this excitement is not there anymore. Yeah. But, the, but they can do the kind of bells and whistles stuff. So I, I've seen how you, you load it up into your Apple um, into Apple Pay. Yeah. You, your letter arrives and there's an, I assume, an NFC chip or something, and you do that. Yeah, it but it's not on the card, is it? That's the problem. Uh, yeah, well, is it not on the card? No, the NFC chip is not on the card. There's no, no it's, NFC chip. it's on the package. So it's ah. actually part of the packaging to register it between the phone and the, the card. So it's, it's, it's smart how they've created the packaging. And, the, and again, they're, they're sort of creating a, an experience around right. that, aren't they? Which, they've which got is the unboxing clever. right, which is yeah. what they, what they always um, get right. And then everybody else will want to have that unboxing experience for everyone else's card. So they can always keep making it exciting, but that's what they always do. I mean, but then the design's wrong, because they always get design wrong. Like, I think it's encapsulated in the in the tagline for the entire product, and that it's created by Apple, not a bank, and that's really all they care about. Yeah. So even though Goldman Sachs is kind of running this whole thing behind the scenes, Apple's name is all over it, mm. and they've had to do things like give the card three separate card numbers just so that they can maintain this idea of not having a card number on the card, for example, and encouraging you to use it through Apple Pay because that's mm. where they're going to make all their money through interchange fees. So it's definitely like got Apple's name and. I mean, I don't know how long this was, but Joni Ive maybe all over it. Yeah. <laughs> and do you know what? I did enjoy uh, the in- uh, initial sort of reveal of this one where Johnny Ive was talking about reinventing financial services and how banking has been broken for... And I was like, it just looks like European fintech, mate, doesn't it? So I'm not sure if that necessarily led to him leaving Apple, but it probably should have done. That was one of the hilarious <laughs> things, actually, when they first started to reveal a bit more about the card. It was like, oh, God, you're going to get spending insights, colour-coded categories, and everyone in Europe is like, what? this is not news. <laughs> Do you, do you know what? I was sitting with Jason, uh, Jason Bates, uh, at the time, and he was like, "Yeah, like it's the only time I felt smarter than Johnny Ive, you know," and yeah, <laughs> which was good. I do uh, think there will though be a stumbling block just because Apple, like, the US is not contactless friendly yet, and if you're trying to convince people to use Apple Pay in places they can't use Apple Pay, well, then immediately customers are going to be like, "Well, I've got this new product, and you're promising me great cashback, but I can't actually use it anywhere." So. What use is it? And paying it off takes seven days, apparently, still. So you have to go to the underlying that came out as well. So but this, like, there's, a, there's a big risk for Apple in that because when you just look at what Apple has done before with their, with their control, uh, control freakish niche about their, their products mm-hmm. so that they wanted to control everything yeah. um, of what their products are about, now only a small part of the thing, especially the name is only Apple, the rest is in the design maybe, but the rest is uh, somebody else where the whole customer experience might go quite Mm. wrong right. and uh, as you said before this um, and this comes back to apple nobody is is then saying this is uh, this goldman or this is somebody else it is at the end of the day it's an apple card yeah. and when something goes wrong it will always come down to apple so i think that uh, we see a seismic shift here in in how they look at products and, uh, and penta people care if penta goes wrong they don't care about 
like the underlying suppliers. Exactly. And I've just done that for Absolutely. three years of my life. I can tell you that yeah. for free. So Absolutely. if Apple has the same problems, yeah. no one will care. It'll I think the, the role of Go- Goldman here is interesting, though, because I think we've all got experience of big banks and how siloed that they, they can operate. But if Goldman behind the scenes are merging Apple credit card data with Marcus data, suddenly you've got like, high interest savings with credit card data, and then it's not that much of a leap into something like longer term in- investments. Mm. And so I think that's quite an interesting play from Goldman Sachs, but not, not much publicity for them. really. Yeah. yeah, but they're not using the data. <laughs> they're, they're not selling the data. They oh, didn't right. say they're not using they're it. <laughs> so, so essentially, this is this is the benefit of the Marcus platform. Essentially, you know, the, the it, it says Goldman Sachs in the same way as Marcus is Goldman Sachs, but but it, this is essentially the Marcus platform being exposed through a JV with somebody else. I, th- I think the really interesting thing for uh, to your point around branding. I mean, actually, I mean, credit cards lead to people getting into debt like this is an eventuality of this because i mean shiny aluminium things cost a lot of money right so like how do you think the apple brand will take basically being the sort of gateway drug into to debt for kind of many a people kind of carrying this card around i mean probably just fine we're actually kind <laughs> of seeing it a little bit outside of apple but with Klarna's entry to the u.s because they've gone on a big um, marketing campaign with using influencers and trying to get young people of any kind of shape and form into using something that is effectively interest-free payments but then kind of can give you a really big interest rate if you don't make the payment without much forethought into who are they actually targeting because if you choose an influencer you've got no control over that audience and there could be a lot of people in there who aren't very fiscally responsible who are vulnerable that are receiving this information and then thinking oh great a new product I can use and when you get big companies that don't always understand how to appropriately market to vulnerable communities, that can be an issue. Agree. As the German here on the team, I must say then that the, the that I don't see the Apple card really coming into into Germany because first of all it's not a credit card market. But the credit card, not just this deferred debit card, but the credit card, and be, because the the um, the APR is is capped in Germany, so you cannot go out and, and ask for 24 or 35 percent APR. So it's it's roughly between 12 percent, which is the highest um, uh, feasible amount you can charge yeah. to a customer. Yeah. So and that is where the whole business case wouldn't work then anymore. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's going to be interesting, you know, in a similar way that um, I mean, Apple Pay struggled with certain geographies in terms of the the fees and the pushback from you know various different banks you know it's going to be interesting to see whether apple and goldman sachs take this in a partnership to other geos as well i think they have thought on how the the repayment piece as well and that they've made a lot of marketing about saying oh we've going to help people repay easier but debt the, management and things but yeah. it goes back to your point emily that actually that doesn't really matter if they have to send debt collectors after even 100 people then that's their brand in a not a very nice place it's kind of like so. a new level of fintech disruption now we've kind of disrupted the traditional layers of banking and all of the tech behind it and now when we're thinking about how to get over that early adopter hill and into mass consumption and using traditional forms of marketing and new forms of marketing Mm. should financial products be used in that way yeah I I think um, I I mean we've talked about this on the podcast before I think it's a it's a great uh, stroke from Goldman Sachs's perspective, you know, essentially being in a situation where they uh, they use their balance sheet to enter into a, a market that actually they can afford to disrupt the business model of everybody else in that space. I wonder if we'll start to see people like BlackRock kind of maybe take this playbook and go, do you know what, we've got a lot of money, we can afford to go into another industry and spoil it for other people, but make a bunch of money for ourselves as well. Mm. I mean, Marcus is an amazing execution of, of using a balance sheet. Mm. I mean, it's as simple as that. Take your time. 
find money, uh, get money that you can lend and then lend it effectively without ever having to have a checking account. Mm. With all the stress of it, it's incredible, really. Yeah, it turns out it's really easy when you've got loads of money, doesn't it? (laughs) (laughs) All right, on that note, let's move on to the next uh, story then. So over on Finextra, we have global fintech investment falls sharply. So the total value of fintech deals globally in the last six months uh, that was ended in the 30th of June was $22 compared to the $31.2 that is, in the same period of 2018. So that's a decline of 29%. The drop was mostly due to a lack of the giant deals like Ant Financial were doing uh, back in 2018. And after discounting those transactions, global fintechs would have actually have climbed 28% in the first half of 2019. So despite all of the fear-mongering and like the sky is falling that I saw a lot of people doing, then uh, not all is to be uh, sort of too concerned about it yet. So what do you, what do you think? Is this, a, is this a sign that maybe we've had some like really big rounds kind of out the way with some major players and actually what's happening now is a little bit more steady state? Or is this just the Chinese market skewing numbers? I mean, I'd say it's the, the, the first, it's the opposite in that like... Um, I also, I wrote some data this week for CityM about the wider UK tech sector and it's now been made official that in the first seven months of this year, the UK tech sector has raised more in foreign investment than it did in the entire of 2018. Yeah, Obviously, take that Brexit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Obviously that's all of tech, but fintech is, as always, the biggest part of that. Um, and rounds for people like Checkout, Oak North, Greensill, essentially the trend we've been seeing is that rounds are getting fewer but larger everything is later stage investors are plunking more money into the bigger companies they can trust and seed stage is starting to kind of fizzle out a little bit more so i'd say that even though we don't have something like an app financial this year that doesn't mean at all that fintech is on in any way shape or form on its way out so Hmm. to speak do you think some of those uh, investments though in the first half of the year are people preparing for brexit like having enough money just in case something goes wrong or a recession happens in the second half of the year if you're a big uh, venture back, you know venture back business. You want to make I, sure I think, that I think when, you, when you look at the ticket size and uh, where they uh, went into, so when that's two things. And you said this, um, Nicole. This is one thing is the the amounts are getting bigger and the the deals getting fewer. And that is for me, it's a sign that uh, that somebody is looking a safe haven for 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 putting money in to a place where it's let's say somehow already proven into the market, and uh, and then preparing for for. Uh, events like the Brexit or mm. or an upcoming downturn, everybody's talking about it, and we might be even you know uh, conjuring this up by talking about it. Mm. Um, but I think the the most important thing here is actually that we just look at fewer deals. What does it mean that um, there is big chunks of money put into companies who actually don't need this money anymore because they're at a stage where they are. Yes, expanding, but um, it doesn't fuel the actual startup economy where the money is needed. A, a Klarna doesn't need a couple of hundred million now, I guess, because Klarna, um, from, from their business model, they have been very, very cash-oriented right from the beginning. And, um, and so this is, this is more a marketing game and a safe haven thing. Um, and this is what I really don't like about what is happening right now, that, um, that VCs and investors are not looking at the lower end of the market, the younger companies. They, um, they're just jumping ship on big tickets mm. and making them even bigger. What I think it is, is that I, it's not really about marketing, but it is. you are right on the safe havens point in that in the last few years, as tech has really ramped up and come to, the fo- come to focus, um, 
a lot of VCs have been plowing money into startups and now they're getting bigger and they're getting to the point where they want to make an exit. And that's not going to happen anytime soon if you're plowing into seed stage or series A. But if you're thinking about people like Oak North and Greensill, they're pretty much IPO ready, if not within the next year, two years. And so investors are thinking, well, it's a time of uncertainty. I've got loads of money out, but not much money coming in because nobody's exiting yet. So I'm only going to focus on businesses that are likely to do that for me sometime soon. And I think that's the trend that we're seeing now is more VC are getting a bit like the VC game's long it's time to get out <laughs> and start new funds and kind of set the cycle going again so we're seeing the end of that cycle and a new one will come soon uh, yeah I, th- I think it's a I think it's a cycle in investment but also like you say cycle in the maturity of the market to a certain degree particularly in the SME and the retail space I think there are many more cycles to come in terms of other slices of financial services but I do think it is the you know proverbial readying for the, the zombie apocalypse by putting money under the mattress of the the startup you know, it's like the downturn. We don't know how bad it's going to be. We don't know how long it's going to be. Therefore, stockpile cash while you can and you can get it in order to mitigate the problems that you might have down the line type thing. So, Which from a startup perspective, but actually that's super interesting on the fund side as well, because potentially we just don't have enough funds in London and the European Union. Because actually, maybe maybe they're all maturing at roughly the same time. This is, by the way, very influenced yeah. by a book but, but I've I, just read all about like the venture capital world and mm. how that ten year maturity cycle mm. really impacts how well, they invest. So so. I was speaking to um, Simon over at Draper Esprit. He's the CEO. It's a listed VC fund in mm. London. They've backed Revolut and a bunch of people. And he was saying how Europe is largely an untapped wealth for VC. There's about there's a big dearth of funds coming out of Europe and going into European startups. A lot of the VC money is coming from either China or the US. But VCs in the US are now being stuck in 10, they've made a 10-year fund and they've been in it for 15, for 20, and nothing, no exits have happened yet. So they're starting to think, well, this money's going long. What if there's a run? What if the investors, the LPs want their money back? This is what I need to start thinking about. So that's another reason why 2019 is the year of the tech IPO. Um, But in Europe, that hasn't really happened yet because nobody's been around long enough for 10 years or there's not been enough companies launching. And so, as as you said, David, it's about the maturity of the market as Mm. well at the same time. It's exciting, though, isn't it? Because at the point where, I mean, the incentive to restart the cycle will be at the point of IPO or, you know, exits of one form or another, which means actually, I mean, you know, downturn or not downturn, actually somebody like a you know, like an Oak North actually kicking off that next cycle again for all, you know, it feels almost like the next generation of fintechs kind of coming through. It's um, it's quite an exciting time over the next two to three years, I think, in that space. The fund could be sending money back to the LPs. The LPs are then thrilled and produce a bigger fund. Exactly, yeah. Do that again. Yeah, yeah, do that again. <laughs> uh, yeah. Interesting. And the whole cycle resets itself. But for the record, I think um, there will be kind of a downturn in VC. I'm more of an optimist in that sense in that, We've had two years of thinking Brexit's going to happen and it's gotten to the point now where we're pretty much at like ground zero, worst ever scenario right at the door. And the funds are still coming in. No one's daunted. 20, 2019 is set to be a record year. We raised $9.4 billion in the UK tech sector in 2018. And this year we're predicted to get about $11 billion. And that's with all the bad stuff happening. So I don't know if it's that no one's daunted. I think, you know, the the exchange rates mean that UK companies priced in sterling look very good value right now to, to foreign <laughs> investors. And I, I think that that has a has a big impact as well. But I'm always delighted to see investment in the UK, but I think exchange rates are are making a play there. Yeah, definitely we we sort of 
look cheap to a certain degree. Yeah. Especially if you've got a, a UK-based or a UK-denominated fintech, Sterling-denominated, that is has got a global um, footprint and is getting revenues in different currencies. I think we look we look good value. Mm. One thing on the um, maturing of the sector that I think is interesting is I think for all of us who've been involved in fintech for however however many years, what I've started to know is a sort of maturing of the companies which are going to make it are going to make it. And there are quite a few zombie fintechs where I've started to notice people moving back into some more traditional financial services companies. And so I think there could be quite a lot of closures of ones that just haven't quite pushed themselves over the line. Yeah, there's not that many people running out of banks now going, I'm just going to start this fintech and it'll be wonderful. And it's like, oh, yeah. yeah exactly. I like the idea that it's, it's sort of like, um, you know, uh, keep calm and carry on investing. Like, I, I like that vibe. There's a, there's a title for you, Laura. All right, moving on to the next story. We have NatWest hid a data breach from customers. So this is over on the Times. Highly sensitive personal data, including banking details of more than 1,600 NatWest customers, has um, been left in a former employee's home for more than a decade because the bank has been able to reach an agreement on the safe return of this information. Uh, Royal Bank of Scotland, NatWest owner, has not alerted affected customers to the serious breach because it does know does not know exactly what information its former workers hold. The former NatWest employee who was dismissed by the bank in uh, June 2009 said she had been trying to negotiate the safe return of the information ever since. I mean, you just give the laptop back. It sounds like it's being held to ransom, doesn't it? I literally, when I heard the, when I read this story, I was like, I don't understand any aspect of this story. So, well, <laughs> like, open to the exactly table. The story kind of explains that she's holding on to some of that information because a, they can't agree a safe way for her to give it back. They haven't really decided what's the best way for her to give but back the information. Just, like, walk it to a brudge. This is what well, I mean. I don't yeah. understand. And then also, she also wants to keep some of it because she's planning on reporting some of what she's found to the FCA with allegations of mis-selling wow so she doesn't really want to give it all back because she wants to keep some of it for her well she wants to give it back but also keep a version of it for her own records because she wants to bring this case and so it's all a bit kind of how how do you negotiate that because you don't want to you want to get the data back for, for your customers and just to save your skin but you also don't want her to be bringing a case against you so you've got to appease the employees some way i'm yeah, but, really the, sure. but that's that's the point. It's, it's all right what was said and is within the story. This is um, something obviously that's a that's a British story, so this, I, I can just relate to it from from the outside. But interestingly enough, how can you not in ten years' time negotiate a deal with one employee? This is something which is completely out of my. I, I cannot understand how you cannot manage to get a deal with one person. We're not just, negotiation experts. Uh, well, it's, uh, sorry, <laughs> sorry, you should read uh, The Art of the Deal, I guess. Um, uh, <laughs> I guess if know. you're trying to find a way to do it without tipping off the authorities of what's happened and trying not to get her to tip off the authorities either, you've got to kind of do it on the DL. But. Yeah, but, but then you talk then you talk to this employee and then you negotiate yeah. and you get the bloody thing back and you have to throw some money at her, I guess. And, um, I and, agree. And, I mean, how customer data left on a laptop or a... USB drive, I guess, is interesting. Maybe printed out. I thought it yeah. was printed out. Is really? Wow. Maybe I misread the I guess the it raises the question of like, we're trying to become an environment that's more accepting of working from home and being flexible and understanding employees' needs. But also like, why was she allowed to take it home? Mm. <laughs> or, or I think it was she. Um, 
like we've seen this happen too often now where something's gone work from home or something came off an email server that wasn't meant to because somebody tried to take it out of the office and then there's been a data breach and then there's been problems. Well, uh, well that's what it says here. It's the bank, uh, the bank worker claims she was sacked after raising concerns about the security of her working from home arrangement, which is like, well, yeah, you've just printed off customer <laughs> data or something. Like, you know, you've made this thing. So it's it's an interesting one though, isn't it? But I mean, in, with digital systems, with, you know, with uh, like 24 seven working practices with remote systems, you know, VPNs into anything, then essentially like there's, you sort of have to trust people, but also there are employment contracts for these types of things, right? You know, you will or won't do these things in a process of, uh, you know, so, if she has done this stuff, if she has printed out these things, if she has taken it off their systems, which she must have been able to do in order to retain the information post-termination of uh, her access, then I'd say she's breached a contract. No, not only the, the contract, but the law. Yeah. She, she breached uh, banking secrecy date, uh, law. Mm. So this is um, if, if you do this in order to blackmail or negotiate, whatever you want to call it, um, if she does that, she is in direct breach of uh, banking secrecy yeah. law. But then Sorry. why hasn't, if that's, that sounds black and white? But maybe there's a whistleblower clause. Well, yeah, this is what I'm thinking, is that if she's intending to, if she's seen something in this data and she wants to bring it to the FCA because of these ad- alleged mis-selling issues, that's why she's holding on to it. So why has she not gone to the FCA then? Well, apparently she wants to, or she even has already. Well, but it's 10 years. <laughs> we're, talking, I, we're, we're looking at a period of 10 years. So if yeah. there's something, it's a very strange story. and I think there's uh, something like due diligence and um, in due course that you have to take an action. So if she found something... Um, why wouldn't she have gone to the FCA right away? She's yeah. gone to the ICO, which is the data regulator. I think she hasn't gone to the FCA yet because it's probably been held up with this ICO yeah. debate now. Mm. I think in the UK, you normally only have to keep data for seven years. So it'd be quite amusing <laughs> if the bank doesn't have this data anymore, but she does. Yeah, yeah. you're like, it's out of date, just keep that. That is true, it's seven years. Yeah, they <laughs> won't have years, it. They She'll won't have, have the it. only set. Yeah, exactly. Wow. So they don't okay. even know. I mean, maybe that's why they it. want it back. You know? yeah. <laughs> um, it's interesting, though, that, I mean... You know, the flip of this is so organizations are, must notify the ICO within 72 hours of becoming aware of a breach. Now, uh, I can't quite place exactly how many hours are in 10 years, but it's definitely more than 72. Um, so, well, what do you this think? This happened sort of, before those rules were in place, so oh, she's not required to. It, well, the company wasn't required to anyway. Wow. That, I mean, it's it, the whole GDPR it, thing again. Yeah. <laughs> if it happens before the date it gets put in place, then it doesn't apply to you. And I guess we didn't have up to scratch data laws before the ICO, so. Interesting. All right. Well, I imagine it feels like there's details in this that will probably come to light kind of over the the course of uh, hopefully not another 10 years. All right. Next up, we have a story over on TechCrunch. This is Credit Karma Glitch Exposed Users to Other People's Accounts. Oh, dear. Users of credit monitoring site Credit Karma have complained that they were being served other people's account information when they were logging in. So Credit Karma offers customers free credit score monitoring and reports. The company allows users to check their scores against several major credit agencies, including Equifax, uh, which had a few hiccups, didn't it, last year? Um, Credit Karma's Spokesperson Emily, surname I can't pronounce, denied that there was a data breach, but asked how many uh, would not answer how many customers were actually being affected by this. She went on to say, "What our members experienced this morning was a technical malfunction that has now been rectified. There is no evidence of a data breach." The statement went on to say, "I mean, 
there is evidence of a data breach. That's literally what the customers are sort of saying. Um, it's an interesting one that essentially with the same, you know, your own username and password, you're essentially being served other people's data. That's kind of weird. I guess at least it's not sort of maybe transactional things in that sense, but definitely showing other people's what would be considered PII is a problem, right? Put your COO hat back on again. You'd be disappointed with this one. <laughs> yeah, right? I'd be super disappointed. But it's also um, all the underlying um, credit agencies in the US have an incredibly long history. It's like a sort of, it's like a running local news story in America. You know, Equifax has shown me this or put something that's not on there. Or, and it's, it's disappointing that credit, what are they called, Credit Karma, mm. um, uh, have, have done this. But I assume they're running on underlying data. So I'm not sure if it was the underlying supplier or their mistake. Mm. But. Well, it's dis- I guess it's disappointing, but like uh, there was a whole John Oliver um, last whatever his program for he did a whole half hour on this at one point. Mm. It's well worth watching, but it sounds exactly the same as that. So. I mean, I think whether on I, I, it's definitely a data breach. Like the fact that they can think it's not is pretty much insane. But I mean, one customer said that um, he after he was served another full person's full credit report, they then messaged the user on LinkedIn to let him know that his data was compromised. If you were able to see somebody else's credit report and from that then be able to locate that person and message them, that's significant. That's not just seeing somebody else's numbers and not knowing where it came from or it's like, definitely who's it was. identifiable at that point, isn't it? Yeah. If you can find them on LinkedIn. <laughs> when I read the story this morning in, in preparation, one thing that struck me was that I've never done that process of like checking my credit score. I don't know if you guys have ever ever done that, but despite the the data breach, I decided to do it with with this company, and I was quite surprised by how easy it like how little data you have to give to get your data back. I, I feel like I know that data on at least 50 people and it's it's i mean it's pretty easy you need your address and uh, a few other things but it's well i'm both impressed and terrified by you right now <laughs> and feel really weird that i told you what my uh, mother's maiden name was before this like no, uh, you i don't wonder need why anything you're like that you just literally need your address and 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 that you've lived there for however many years and that's i've, that's, used, that's it. It. I've used clear score and it's great it's very nice and occasionally useful it's way more relevant uh, in the US because it, it can have a real impact on jobs you can get. Yeah, and I think um, that Equifax data had like social security numbers and stuff yeah. for us. I, I felt like this data was, was it was quite benign, I, I think, but it, it, it didn't feel that secure to get to the data in, yeah. in the first place. How was your school? <laughs> I was I was happily surprised. Yeah, okay. Congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I have an interesting angle to this, which which I don't know how, how you guys see this. It's if, if you have a situation like this and let's let's put it that way nobody is um, is completely out of the the possibility that this might happen to your company as well right so how do you deal with something like that that's um are you being upfront immediately to all your customers to the public um and this, this is data breaches this is uh, technical malfunctions and stuff like this and i just saw the I don't know whether you've seen this in uh, Commerzbank in Germany over the past couple of months have had a lot of issues towards the end of the month when there was a high transaction volume. So there was many, many people who basically lost their PayPal account because um, it could not be refilled by the by the Commerzbank account. So um, they missed their payments on, the, on, on rent and stuff like this. So and from a PR perspective, um, this was an absolute disaster how uh, Commerzbank managed the whole thing. The question is, 
what is the right way? How do you deal with something like this? Are you completely upfront? Um, we saw that uh, Monzo was really, um, for the first thing, what was it, two years ago when they had um, the first big issue and they, they were really yeah, upfront when, about it? When they had GPS and GPS went down. But I mean, Monzo, what was it, three weeks ago now, they, they had a problem with storing pins and some information in a unsecured manner. Is that right? It was that, so... For a brief period, customer PIN numbers were available to employees at Monzo, like a certain selection of data engineers, I think, um, to view. And then they quickly went away again and they solved it. But even though it had been fixed and they had no evidence that any any fraud had been committed as a result, they still openly put their hands up. They did a big letter. Um, they said, this is exactly what happened. This is exactly how we fixed it. If your PIN was one of those that was featured in the breach, then... Um, we've already contacted you to change it anyway. But there was an interesting conversation had on Twitter about that particular breach in that Eileen Burbage, who is um, a founder of Passion Capital, which is an investor in Monzo, said, oh, well, you know, this is really great of Monzo because um, for them to openly admit to having this breach, they kind of open themselves up to bad press. And is this the way that startups should be going now? But actually... Several journalists commented saying, I mean, pretty much all of the press around the breach was positive. Even, it, it even was though, weird, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, even though Monzo was admitting to having made a mistake, almost no one was like, oh, bad Monzo. But imagine if it was someone like Revolut who's already had a pretty bad time in the press. It would be crazy the amount of like negative attention it would get. Mm. Um, so I think it also, in, this is kind of a, a running section on if a startup is transparent from the start, do they then are they then able to somewhat dictate how their press coverage goes in the future, even when they mess up? Yeah, I, th I think there's a definite uh, an element there of like goodwill and good behaviour and understanding of people's intent definitely leads to a different sort of context type thing. It's it's similar to like I mean if you're caught out in you know a few of these instances that we've sort of talked about on this show and before, then people kind of react to it very differently. Whereas if you to your point actually if you if you really are transparent about this and seem to care about it, I mean my bizarrely my reaction with the Monzo one was I mean it's like a few engineers you know, they hire good people. This is a much smaller thing than I would have thought it would have been if they'd stored them completely incorrectly and they were publicly available. So it's it's a it's a strange one. You you carry the intent of the organization with you now. And I and I think increasingly that's why people are selecting organizations to have as services because they believe in the company, not just what the company provides them. This is uh, this is exactly the point um that if you go out and, and say something like this with a pin, because actually without the card, you can't do anything with a pin, right? So you need to have the, the physical card in order to do something with a, with a pin. But then you admit something like it, so people start thinking that you're very open about when you, when you do make a mistake, and everybody does make mistakes, right? Now the question is, if this was not upfront and uh, then some journalist gets an information like this and asks about it, then there's a shitstorm coming which yeah. you cannot control in any way, shape or form. And then the, 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 it begs the next question, how much can I trust the organization I'm doing business with? Mm. Yeah? If they are not even telling me if my data are, are getting out into the public. Um, so this is, I think it's, 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 a, it's a very thin line 
which you have to do, and you can do it terribly wrong. So I think there is no right or wrong way. But this is, um, uh, in order to be really professional, mm. you have to re-weigh up all the chances, uh, what's, what, what can happen here, and how you can control the public opinion about it. Yeah. When you start on this path, you need to stay on the front foot. Because mm. if you ever fall yeah. on the back foot and a journalist beats you to it, then it's going to look like you covered it exactly. up. Then you're in de- that defense, right? You'll be defensive. So. But that's a very good point. But I also did wonder on that one, because the risk is really really low you know they've they've background checked all their engineers they've they're as you say you have to have the card it is very very small they could contact their users in an appropriate way um i wonder if you're one of those how many it is two hundred thousand three hundred thousand people who are signing up every week and you go onto the press and you see that is that going to impact your are you going to think well actually maybe i don't go with monzo like i i, I because for, for, but then i get your point but but if they if it had been found out through the back door, then it looks sneaky. Yeah, so well, it's... in this particular instance, you're right, it's a minor incident. But so if Monzo is open about declaring minor incidents, yeah. then everyone's going to assume, well, this must be the biggest incident they have. It must be really safe mm. to bank with Monzo. In, like, obviously inferring a level of financial yeah. literacy, I wouldn't also suggest that maybe everybody who reads these stories is going to really understand, like, oh, that's minor. Um, but yeah, like then you you have to beg the question, like, well, if something big happened, would they tell us? I mean, I personally hope they would. I'm not going to be a skeptic, but I mean, personally, I think they should have waited ten years and then brought it up. Yeah, oh, print yeah. it out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, let's go to a break. This deal sets apart a brighter future. We will leave the EU. Clearly, the pressure is beginning. British jobs The more you hear about Brexit, the less clear it all becomes. When everyone else is shouting, listen. For the clarity behind the headlines, subscribe to the Financial Times. Visit ft.com. Today, customers are demanding greater value from financial services. They expect more agility, innovation and security than ever before. Most financial institutions are held back by the shackles of closed legacy systems that limit transparency, block innovation and ignore customers' demands. Finastra has a bold vision to unlock the potential of people and business. They've created a platform for open innovation in the world of financial services with FusionFabric.cloud. Their solutions span retail, transaction lending, and treasury and capital markets on-premise and in the cloud. Start your transformation journey today with Finastra. Cybos, the world's premier financial services event, is landing in London's XL on the 23rd to the 26th of September. More than 8,000 decision makers and experts from across the globe will gather to shape the future of finance and the opportunities for fintechs will be bigger than ever. Specially priced fintech tickets are available. Don't miss out. Book today at cybos.com. Welcome back to Fintech Insider from 11FS. If you love this show, do not forget to leave us a review over on iTunes. We super duper love those reviews. And if you do love the show, please go out and tell some friends because, I mean, you must have some, right? Yeah, go and tell them. Cool. All right, let's get up with the show. 
Next story that we've got over on TechCrunch is TransferWise debit card launches in APAC. So this is international money transfer startup TransferWise debit card is now available in Australia and New Zealand with Singapore launch expected by the end of the year. TransferWise debit card, which features low transparent fees and exchange rates, first launched over in the UK and Europe last year before arriving over in the US in June. Since its launch, the company claims the debit card has been used for 15 million transactions, which actually doesn't seem like that many when you start thinking about how many customers that might be. Um, But what do you guys think about this? I mean, I have a TransferWise debit card. I don't use it a whole lot. Did you use it 15 million times? (laughs) Well, no, but that's kind of my point is that I'm surprised that like they're going real hard on it because I don't really see it having done super well at the moment. Like they did a big campaign for it when it launched in the US. They got a guy from Queer Eye to do some like promo for it, which I thought was quite cool. Um, And now they're going to Is that why you got the card? Well, I I had it from the UK launch because, you know, fintech nerd, got to have more. Um, Yeah, Tan France. Yeah. but so they've launched in the US and now in the APAC region as well. And it's a bit like, well, if, if you haven't really seen the success in the UK, this is a lot to put into it. Mm. But I do think that in the business banking segment, there is a lot to be had still. Um, there's still a whole ton of people who are saying, well, for my business, I have about three accounts because this one's really good for this currency and this one's really good for this feature. And if TransferWise could effectively unite all of those into one, well, then... That, that is the gold mine and that's what they should be aiming for. Hmm. What I did think was interesting though about this launch was that they launched, uh, I think it's called Platinum, their premium offering with it, which is not something that's available here or in the US. So they've started going premium for their business account, well, no, for regular consumer debit cards, sorry, um, but only in APAC. So I'll wait and see if it gets over here. But they had things like, you know, the usual airport lounge discounts. And- wow. Fancy APAC bastards with their platinum cards. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Their, their positioning in the States was, was interesting, wasn't it? Because it wasn't actually aimed at business people. They very much set themselves up as, you know, open to the world, open to immigrants, um, which was kind of, it was, it was a relatively political campaign in but a quite I, soft way, which, which is yeah. interesting because it was like they were going after a defin, definitely different demographic. I think that's kind of a trend in the US, though. You're seeing a lot of, if you enter the US market, you're competing with the likes of Chime and Green Dot and um, One Savings Bank and things. And so, like, um, you need something to stand out. And often that tends to be the underbanked segment. It's mm-hmm. like there's a whole, there's a really, really large chunk of the US population that is either underbanked or unbanked. And if you can offer a card that can get you where you need to go and do all the things you need to do with relative little upfront cost besides having a smartphone, which actually most people do these days. They're relatively cheap to get, especially if you get something that's like pretty like run-of-the-mill basic um, or you have to be able to charge it somewhere. Yeah, Android (laughs) for sure. Um, Then you're pretty much up and running if you can get an address. I I wonder on this one, you know, similar to the conversation we're having around Goldman Sachs, is this... You know, if you've set yourself up, and to a certain degree, we've seen this with maybe with what Monzo and Revolut are doing to a certain degree. You know, if you set yourself up for delivering very low cost capability, uh, you know, basic banking capability, if you can then start taking that to other markets that are uh, underserved or overcharged. You know, the stat that jumps out to me on this is so in Australia, the TransferWise Platinum Debit Mastercard is on average eleven times cheaper than most travel debit or prepaid cards in the region. Like. That is astounding. Um, so is it almost non-homegrown capability? You know, is this the 
positive sign of globalization, where you build something that's awesome in, in quite a high-cost environment that's cheaper, and then you can export it to everywhere. Yeah, but this begs the question, taking, taking TransferWise out of the, the equation here, why is there no fintech playing in this field um, if this is so much more expensive to have or to play with a, with a local bank? Um, so what is the, the, the fintech environment down there in, in Kiwi land and in, in Australia? I, I, think, um, I think Australia very well protected. Essentially, the, you know, they, they have almost been the Galapagos island of the, the kind of banking space because essentially the four banks kind of owned all the banking uh, and the regulator, unlike here in 08, moved to protect much bigger organizations and almost close the doors for competition as opposed to really sort of fostering change and foster competition. And it's only really in the last, I mean, since all of the, um, you know, the, the sort of inquiries and all of the, the work that's been gone on to show some real sort of deficiencies in the big players, have they started to think competition might be a good idea? I think um, when when I think of TransferWise, I always think of my um, management consultant colleagues who travel internationally. And I think maybe one of the reasons the transaction volumes is so low is because people originally were using TransferWise for things like paying their rent in another country when they were staying there for a month. And it was like a big value, so like in the thousands. And that was a really useful use case for TransferWise. The use case of using a TransferWise card in any currency and just having lower fees, probably people don't notice that quite so much. But the people who are using it for those big balances are real evangelists for TransferWise, I think. Mm. They're always really super positive about it. For me, the biggest differentiator when they launched was the local bank account details that they offer for, I think, well, in the when they launched, it was six different countries. I haven't checked in since then um but in you're right in the australia there's not a lot of disruption there are a few players who have kind of tried to take over but these big four are proving really hard to crack and they allow disruption in certain areas so the australian securities exchange has recently moved on to basically partial blockchain but besides that it's kind of all baby steps and trying to crack a market over there when you've come from here probably just takes mm. the might of somebody as well funded as TransferWise. Yeah, I mean, Sarah Kachansky in our office is basically flying the flag for opening 11FS down there because, I mean, Zinger and Up and 86400 and all the banks that are starting down there, it's almost the, the regulatory reform has really sort of led to I mean, here in 2012, essentially. Um, and I think we'll see a similar cycle, really. The, those guys will gain a lot of momentum and then the big banks will have to fight back and then whatever the third Star Wars movie was, essentially. It's almost like the fintech bridge agreements that the UK has been signing all over the place, at least in the case of Australia, was more for Australia's sake than for ours. I mean, everywhere else it's kind of been, oh, well, we'll adopt something from this. So like, for example, for India in the UK, it's a big market that we can gain access to. Australia's not really like that. So maybe we're kind of being more kind to them than they're being kind to us in that sense. True. I, I wonder if TransferWise are picking like endpoints. Like, are they picking, you know, money corridors that they're essentially seeing money flowing from and to to basically establish a, you know, a please don't move all that money out of the account, but keep it in our account and then you can spend on this as well. Um, that might be smart on their part, but uh, there's a few countries in there that I would have expected to see if that was the strategy. Is it countries with like high temporary expats, like countries where they go away for two years or five years and, and they don't really move their entire finances and, and they just want to be able to quickly move these big lump sums? I think that's maybe... Mm -hmm. Australia's a long way to go for a couple of years. 
Lots of people do that, though. Like, really? go live in Australia for a couple of years, come back to the UK, or Aussies coming here for a couple of years. Mm. Like, San Francisco. Price daunts me. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, San Francisco's a long way to go for one day, but these things do happen. So. <laughs> All right, moving on, we have a story over on The Independent, which is Monzo customers to receive salaries a day early under new feature from App Only Bank. Um, so Monzo current account customers will be able to receive their salaries a day earlier under a new service from the app-only bank. Salary payments will enter customers' accounts at 4 p.m. on the day before they would be normally received. Um, I'm not sure how I feel about this one. I, I feel like I'd only care about it for a month and then I wouldn't care anymore because then it's the norm. Mm-hmm. That's what I was thinking too. <laughs> Yeah, when I read it, I thought that it was just like saying you're the other banks are screwing you. But then I think um, maybe it, you'd written in some of the notes that actually it's a ploy to get people to actually finally switch their current account, which I really, I, you know, I switched to, to Starling and it's the best decision that I made. And I think getting people over that line to really switch their current accounts is hard, but this might be the as a, as a sort of social thing, it's great, right? Because um, I feel really conflicted. I was like, oh, so what? And then we're getting paid tomorrow. And I was like, I hope it happens today. <laughs> so, I, I'm really, but, 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 but once you've done it, lots of people are sharing and then they share it and then it shows that lots and lots of people are putting their money in there. And that's quite a smart way to sort of show how much trust there is amongst customers yeah and but, I think but as a, like after your first month it's like, I mean, well, like okay yeah, for me the, it, like for example I don't have my salary paid in but I do have a certain chunk of money paid in every month on the first for my spending for the month that's how I use Monzo you know the old school way um and the main problem is when the first falls on a Sunday or a Saturday and then I'm screwed until Monday because Monzo won't put it in until then and then I'm like oh well you know I really need that money and it's oh, wow, all coming in um and that's where I would need the innovation. You're right. Like if it was salary a day early, well, that just becomes my new payday. So, although I was thinking in the UK, I think we have quite a culture of um, it's payday. Let's go to the pub. And if you're the person that can pay for the pub a day early, then suddenly you're saying, <laughs> "Yeah, I can do this because of my Monzo card." And it's this like quite nice advertising. Now, now it's getting interesting for me <laughs> yeah. because I finally was, a use case. I was I, absolutely. I was looking at the story and was thinking, "What the heck are we talking about?" Um, just uh, we have. In Germany, for instance, we have uh, usually that is either in the middle of the month or the end of the month, but it's not the 1st or the 15th. So sometimes it's the 13th, sometimes it's the 28th or something like that. Nobody cares, actually. The, the actual thing behind there, there's two stories from my perspective. One thing is uh, when the salary goes out of the account of the employer, that's number one. So when it's actually, from a value perspective, leaving this account and then hitting the account of the, uh, of the employee, so which is this, this period of interest-free um, treasury money, which the, the, the banks keep for this time. So that's the thing uh, which with banks, I suppose, is still yeah. existing. So it's still two to three days or something like that? Uh, yeah, this is all a banks-related yeah. thing. So it's a couple of days still. So it's not faster payment, which is uh, almost immediately or immediately. So with SEPA, we don't have that anymore that much. It's it's now, it's within a day, it's, it's mostly there. But that's exactly the point um, from my perspective. It's not the Monzo story here. It's just a story that banks are still working with the money for three days, completely interest-free. And that's something which, from my perspective, in this year and age shouldn't be existing anymore, other than in the US, which is a completely different ballgame. They still have checks. I don't know what that is. <laughs> well, well, actually, that's where, I mean, somebody like Chime over in the US uh, deployed this, uh, this exact feature actually and was pretty successful with it because actually it takes 
I think carrier pigeon to take money to people over there. Didn't, didn't they? But they paid the interest. Business. You paid interest on that, which I, originally I thought this story was like, oh, I can drag my salary forward three days and pay fifty p. Hmm. I was like, oh, that's kind of clever. But it's not even that; it's uh, just back. I mean, if they could, saying. if they could make it a, a day earlier every month, then I'd be down for this. Like, <laughs> so after three years, I'd be ahead by three months. <laughs> I think it might be a loan then. I'm not sure. But. N26 also went live in the US last week um, to everyone, and one of the things they were plugging was that they let you do it two days early. Ooh. So mm, it, does, it does feel like Monzo are winning the PR battle mm. of the challenger banks, and as a Starling customer, I'm sad to see that. But why? Do you think, why do you think that is? They are very authentic. You know, it's as simple as that. Like, and the colour. <laughs> the colour. They, they won out with the colour immediately. For example, so the head of marketing at Monzo, Tristan, he floated this idea on Twitter of letting merchants put stickers in their windows that say, we accept Monzo. And of course, all merchants accept Monzo. It's not like Amex. It's, it's every, everywhere will take Monzo. But it was kind of this idea that like, oh, we're a hip young brand. We accept this cool new card. And it's coming up with new ways of marketing. And not to be a skeptic, but to me, this is a this is a marketing ploy. Mm. It's not going to be really useful to people that they can get paid a day early. But if you can, can create drink, enough drink a day early. <laughs> excitement on Twitter and Instagram that like, oh, well, I got paid today. Well, then that's something that might get someone else to sign up. There's, there's, one, there's one angle, so, sorry Dave, um, there's one angle which I see here and there was a, a kind of a um, LinkedIn battle on uh, on what is the actual main account one uses. Is this the account where the money flows in or is this the account which you use for your everyday spending? So um, myself, I'm I have been with Deutsche Bank for 30 years now. Um, my salary still goes into Deutsche Bank because there's a couple of... Um, you're, you're, you're not that old, Mark. You you're time. never that old. <laughs> you, 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 utility bills and stuff like that. Thank you very much. I have utility bills and I can't be asked to actually move that over. But I don't use my Deutsche Bank account anymore. Yeah. Uh, everything, so I put money over to my, my Tomorrow account, which is a, a nice um, account for, for, let's say, for people who, who look into sustainability and uh, the banking must uh, shouldn't be bad, but it's a good thing to think into the future. So that's what I use, which I use for my, my everyday spending. So it's the, it's the German equivalent of Monzo, but with a, with a green touch. And, and 26, basically. So that's where my everyday spending goes. Now, when we just look at it, the, the, the company who holds the account of my everyday spending, who knows more about me? Deutsche Bank, who just gets the, the, the let's say, the, the boring piping of my salary coming in and maybe three, four utility bills, or the one which has 20, 30 transactions a month, knows what I'm doing, where I'm doing it, um, what I'm spending, on where, etc. So this is a, is a discussion, what is the main account? And probably here, Monzo is running a little bit the train to become... To, to get out of this discussion, to get the salary finally into their account and not just be the one who actually are is the spending card or the spending account, but the one where the money flows into. I mean, Monzo thinks it's my main account and I pay my salary into it just because of that spending money that goes in every month. It's not my salary, but they think they... I've got the little tech chick like tick box that says pay your salary into Monzo so they think I'm already doing it but I mean they have a, a very low limit which is 2000 but I, I actually think the primary account um, isn't where it's where you're paying uh, into your salary it's what you're paying out of it exactly um, so the one that yes. I'm trusting with my utilities or my direct debits or you know standing orders to kind of deal with investment blah, 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 whatever mm -hmm. um, all of that stuff actually isn't my Monzo account it's my Lloyd's account 
Yep. And actually, I'm only sticking with my Lloyd's account because I can't transfer a joint account from a Lloyd's account into a Monzo account, which is a weird kink of how the current account switching process works, which is weird. Um, but, uh, but I think it's that point that actually it gets to, which is in a world where universal banking over here with big uh, existing incumbent organizations works on cross-sell and upsell, well, you know, shiny new world of uh, marketplace banking is predicated on being able to understand you better than anybody else can and therefore serve your needs with the marketplace that people are building up for either functionality when it comes to um, Starling's world or uh, lending or overdrafts or whatever it is, or even utility switching when you're Monzo. Now, if you're not seeing that stuff, you're not able to do that stuff. And almost there's no incentive for me to move that over to get that benefit when I, you know, my, my sort of zombie current account that I've got with Lloyd's just continues to tick over nicely. But that's that's the point, a zombie account, because it, it's nothing else than like a zombie account. Mm. But that's the definition of um, our friends, the traditional bankers, who yes. still think that is the main account because the salary goes into. Mm. And I think they're wrong. Completely, yeah. Mm. I mean, I was lucky that I did a partial current account switch to Monzo back when you still could. So when I set it up, it basically showed me all my direct debits from my old bank account and said, "This is these are all your direct debits. Which ones do you want to switch? And I just ticked the ones I wanted to switch and moved it over. So I still got both accounts. Now you can't do that anymore. And Monzo told me that was because... Um, It just, I mean, it's not what they want. They want you to transfer the whole thing or nothing. So, um, I, I mean, I kind of think in a way it's well, making it harder for customers just for the sake of, well, we'd like you to do all of it, please, Yeah. rather than making it easier for us. Do you know, I had the conversation with my wife. I was like, yeah, we can do it, but I have to kick you off the joint current account. That's our main account. And she was like... I mean, this seems weird. Like you're essentially kicking me <laughs> off our finances to move. It's and I was like, first, yeah, don't it's worry, it's, first it's fine, it's, it's fine. This step. is not. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah no. <laughs> She said, "Is like, yeah, you've taken a lot of clothes to London too." Um, but um, but you know, I think it's an interesting thing. Is actually, if they can't iron those kinks out, it's going to limit the amount of people that they can move to a primary account. But you you say you've moved. To I've Starling. moved 100. I just got into a rage with my traditional bank yeah. after mm. just such poor service, and I just in a rage pressed the button to switch accounts in the. Prime of my traditional bank oh, really? and um, it it just moved seamlessly it was perfect and I, I just love I love styling well we know Anne listens to this like rigorously so uh, <laughs> Hi, you're welcome Anne <laughs> <laughs> I still haven't had my reference face but uh, no. all right moving on to the last story of the week we have over on the Wall Street Journal this is JLo and A-Rod are investing in acorns Alex Rodriguez and Jennifer Lopez are buying a stake in the California-based company joining an investor base that includes Aston Kutcher Bono and Kevin Durant who is a basketball player for anybody who doesn't know the influencer strategy is a brainchild of acorns chief executive Noah Kerner who is trying to transform Acorn from a niche savings app that invests users spare change into bank alternatives uh, used by over 100 million consumers. They are yet to go mainstream, despite 100 million consumers, and are hoping celebrity investors will help them get out there. Uh, as quote said from them, our focus is getting everyday Americans saving and investment for the future in the hopes that we will get the next Kevin Durant or Jennifer Lopez to get there. Oh, that's nice, isn't it? What do you guys think about this one? 
So do they already have 100 million um, users or is that what they aspire to? Apparently so. So it's uh, a lot. Savings app, invest lot. users, spare change, yeah, alternative 100 million consumers. I That's mean, a lot. But since I mean, they have 5 million plus accounts, so yeah, that doesn't make sense. I, I wonder if essentially what they're counting is every time it's been rounded up, uh, which oh. probably comes back to our you doing your transfer wise card 15 million times type thing. So, um, <laughs> well, this is effectively just an American money box, right? For those of us in the UK, if you know money box, you invest your spare change. Although I don't think the US has something similar to an ISA. So I'm not really sure where the, where the funds go. I think from memory, it's a, sim- it's a little bit like a robo advisor. It's a wealth management service and you'll invest it in some form of stocks or shares account that isn't an ISA, but something similar. Mm-hmm. Um, but most of the time, these companies are really just trying to encourage young people who see investing as something that is inaccessible, as something that can be accessible. The problem lies in that if you're only investing your spare change, likely you're not spending enough money to make enough spare change to create an actual dent. And then the fees that you pay for the account will probably kind of equal out in what you may earn in interest off the investments you make. So it still kind of requires a level of injection every week of a cash deposit to actually go anywhere. So so I have a, a sensible point and a silly point. Um, which one would you like first? Silly. <laughs> silly point. Um, does this mean we can get Jennifer Lopez on the, the <laughs> podcast? Yeah, I, I was about to ask the same thing. So. Yeah. I mean, I think this gives us permission, right? I, I mean, like, I actually think that one of the things I think on this is it's, it's easy to kind of laugh about Jennifer Lopez and, like, but I actually think it, there's a very obvious trend of mm. certain people in the States, um, particularly investors. I, I wrote a load down. Will and Jada Smith put money into Step and Bolt. And Naz went into Step. Uh, there's a guy called Chris Lyons who runs the Cultural Leadership Fund in, um, in Andreessen Horowitz. He's got the Smiths, uh, Sean Coombs, Chance the Rapper, Quincy Jones, Snoops and Klarna. Jay-Z is making noises with Marcy Ventures. And I, I just think that it's a wider thing that's going on in the states which is well, going on generally but there's like a there's a big um like empowerment of young people empowerment yeah. of of underserved communities in the states and a lot of people are talking about it and one of those struts is financial empowerment and one of the ways people are doing this is getting investing into these spaces and i think that's i think that's where transferwise went really really right with how they landed in the states on their thing and how i think monzo should absolutely go not after hipsters in, uh, you know, uh, Brooklyn, they should go after people who, they should use that, that cheaper cost base, the proven model, and go after these communities. And I, I really, <laughs> David knows this, but I have like a, I, I would really like the brand to get across the States and change like Range Rover did. Um, or like, you know, ultimately I'd like a music video with a Range Rover, <laughs> someone wearing Burberry and a pink card. I think that would be really cool from a patriotic perspective. But if it, if it does the right thing, which is actually help people who are underserved. So I think a lot of these investments, it's, it's like a, there's a wider point. It's really easy to just go, oh, like JLo's invested in this is kind of funny. And it, I think that's like a cool point. Anyway, I mean, Tom think- might disappoint you on that one because he said he wants to do the growth in the US exactly the same way as he did it in the UK, <laughs> yeah. which well, is word of mouth, no marketing, see how it goes. Yeah, but get get into different communities. Uh, mm-hmm. Like David knows I'm... Like, yeah, I mean, they would, they get into different pick- like community within Los Angeles, within New York, go after communities that that really want this and a mobile first well and, and that's the thing i think the the difference between the us and the uk is uh we are 
a smear of a size in a state in the US. <laughs> right. So, you know, like you say, community and community in state on state is going to be fascinating to see how they sort of get mm. on and do it. I, I think, if I'm honest with you, like, I mean, I'll, I'll definitely get JLo on the definitely podcast. Definitely get JLo on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not closing that down. Like, I'll take Will Smith and Naz too. Um, yeah, but, but, um, but, uh, but I think the, um, the point around almost like coming back to the cycle that we're sort of seeing that we talked about earlier on from an investment perspective, I mean, people like Jay-Z and uh, Snoop Dogg investing in Klarna, like, it just shows fintech's actually a really good place to put money right now in terms of, you know, the reason we're, we're talking about fintech over tech in the UK in terms of the, um, you know, the the, the uh, valuations and the progress is that, I mean, it's just flourishing globally. Right. I, I also see this as actually like the worlds that I love colliding. Yeah, it's, like, it's like, wait, Snoop Dogg and like Will I Am and Naz <laughs> are getting involved in fintech? Like, if somebody can tell me Chinese food is good for you, then, like, my whole world is better, you know? Um, I guess the other side of this as well is that, I mean, particularly on the Acorn side of things, they're looking at, so about 60% of the Acorn users are under 35, and about a third of the accounts that actually have been opened have been, so about 700,000 of those accounts that they've, they've had are now retirement accounts. I think I can maybe talk to that a bit because um, I don't know if you're aware, but investment management is my um, my area. And one of the things that I couldn't really understand about this is how on earth it's going to be profitable and why you know, the celebrities would, would want to invest because it, it's a difficult business model. And the, the numbers that I had was that they had a billion in in savings and that they had um, 4 million accounts. So that equates to a pot of about $250 per person. The charging structure is basically a dollar a month if you're um, just in their like roundup pot. And at that, that's it's actually really competitive. They're just investing in ETFs from BlackRock and Vanguard. Um, so cheap. And then, but if you're in the higher pot, which includes like a pension savings, I think they call it an IRA in, in the States, um, and some extra sort of savings help on top, which is three pounds a month, three, sorry, $3 a month, $3 a month for a 250 pot savings pot is actually super expensive. Like, so I, I think, and, and one of the, the the cool gimmicks that they have is that they won't charge you any more than that three pounds a month, three dollars a month, um, unless you get up to a million. And that makes it super cheap. So if you can put a million in there right. at three dollars a month, that's the cheapest savings account that you're going to have in the world. Mm. So I think it's actually quite interesting that they're targeting the the low savers, but actually the fee structure incentivizes higher savers. So. The, there's something there about the the almost the transparency of the numbers to a certain degree. Yeah. You know, actually, it's only this amount which is something somebody could, because like, I mean, that's a coffee, you know, a really big coffee in America, but a (laughs) coffee nevertheless. But then actually it's a number that people can understand rather than a percentage of a thing of a thing, you know. It's interesting that you say that actually underpinning this, similar to what we were saying about the Apple card earlier on, is... BlackRock. So actually, if those guys are where the ETFs are being actually invested in, then, I mean, this is big boy balance sheets kind of coming into play again, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, to your earlier point about how you market financial products, I think, you know, generally speaking, investing in equities, you want to have a sort of longer time frame. And I'm, I'm not sure that people really understand that who are investing in acorns. But it is really positive because it's getting people who don't save to save. But I think there are some some fee issues and some um, risk issues. That they're they also understand. using some really unique methods of trying to convince people to use the product and also gaining some money for themselves on the side. 
Um, Acorns also earns tens of millions of dollars annually from deals it's struck with with companies like Chevron and Dollar Shave Club and around 350 companies in total that have agreed to invest money in the accounts of Acorns users, like, you know, give them $10, $20, if they then shop at those retailers themselves. A little bit like a cashback, but it's being reinvested immediately. And it's a way for them, for Acorns to generate some revenue, but also convince a user like, well, if I buy this really big ticket product at Chevron, because I mean, they make cars and motorbikes, um, then some of that money is going to go back to me and it'll be reinvested. They may not see it, but they might get a yield at the end and Mm. it's a win for Acorns. Yeah, I think increasingly uh, passive side of things from an investment side, you know, because almost like getting the money is one thing, keeping the money till retirement is another, isn't it? And if you can, you know, plant those seeds all the way through that period of keep the money with us, don't leave it, there's another cool thing coming along, then, I mean, it's super interesting. Yeah, sorry, it's, it's just good that wealth management for young people is not, I mean, it's, it must, most of the wealth management industry that currently exists is super confusing. You know, you go to a, a, a brand you've never heard of, you walk in, there's a man in a suit who tells you yeah. acronyms you've never heard. So anything that makes that simpler, the fee structure. But I think the risk is that none of those businesses really have, have turned a profit yet. And right. But you coming to a point, um, and this is, we haven't talked about it, and Will, you, you, you basically stated a couple of um, celebrities mm. um, invested in, in some companies. I think that we can learn a little bit from, from over the pond uh, of, of how to engage people with names into into businesses um, because what the Americans always have done very well was marketing part of the whole things. So basically, it doesn't really matter what the product is unless you or until you really package it in a nice way, it, it will be a sell, mm. right? This um, And that's, that's, that's a very interesting thing for me that um, that you wouldn't see or you haven't seen anything like that Within Europe, yeah. why is this? I, I think the, the environment is. If you think about the like political environment in the U.S. right now, it, you know it's quite fractured. Everyone knows that. Well, it's like and here, isn't it? What? But, you, no. you, but, no, but you're getting a reaction. So you look at AOC. You look at. You're seeing it in like multiple streams, and I think it's great. And I think more European fintechs that line up along this is really, really smart. Mm. And part of it is like you know, it can't get any worse than this. So we're going to be empowerment, and one of that is financial empowerment. And you know, most of these guys. Um, have been have been producing music that's about empowering yourself for quite some time and they're saying okay we're starting to place bets we want to make a return ourselves but we want to place alongside i think it's really cool and that kind of raises the brand and you know it'd be, it'd be cool if i don't know if j-lo necessarily is going to get 19 year olds into i love her music but <laughs> you know i don't know necessarily if i'm 19 that's going to get me into acorns but i think it's a very cool yeah, uh, and trend. when I was um, researching this today, I, I just Googled Acorns and it came up with a subreddit about Acorns. And there were actually quite a lot of young people saying that like, I started to save because of this. So that's oh, really amazing. cool to see as well. So are we are we saying UK banks need celebrity endorsements? Is that what we're saying? <laughs> well, well, 11FS gets uh, Ron Atkinson, I think, as, a, <laughs> as an endorsement. You know if, if one bank got Stephen Fry, like that guy can narrate my funeral. You know I mean? like, <laughs> he can I would, do everything. Yeah, right? I'd be happy to die if he narrated my funeral. <laughs> I'd do whatever he told me to do. That or Delia Smith, like my Norwich tendencies <laughs> really sort of come out like you know but we, we, I mean we, we had a music star at, at Lee I'm not going to Danny he's head marketing there but we had one music star we wanted to explain finance to young people because we actually thought that one of the biggest problems in the whole sector right now it, is that young people it, all financial advice is like your mum your dad talking to you it's a bit it's a bit like your dad sort of saying oh just do that or you're so like, oh 
have a bit of fun at the bar. Where actually you, you've lived in <laughs> when an, I was young, yeah, <laughs> in an era of like sort of almost limitless information, you can find any information on anything, and it needs to be delivered in a smarter way. People that you know, young people know when they're being BSed. I don't. Um, so, I actually worry that they sometimes don't because there are a few products that have come out, things like um, peer-to-peer lending or, or things like buying bonds in beer companies or burrito companies, that kind of thing. That I think people don't really understand the risk. Hey, that that burrito company had a very good savings rate. I'm just. <laughs> Saying, it, like, it did, but also probably quite high risk, and, very and, true. and that most people don't really understand. I'm not sure you should be buying a bond based on a burrito, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> but uh, but it'd be a yes, it would. Yeah. All right. On that note, we're probably going to have to wrap this up because we're going reasonably like long. a burrito. Indeed, wrap it up like a burrito. <laughs> well done, Will. You're going to fit in really well. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much to our guests for joining us this week. Marco, where can people find out more about you and Penta? I'm very old school, so I'm still only on LinkedIn. Um, I, I closed my Twitter account and all the rest of it. So, um, Were you closed or banned? Because there's a fine line between those two things. Well, I, I, I tell you offline. Um, <laughs> no, so it's, it's LinkedIn, Marco Ventin, and um, uh, Marco at getpenta.com. Very good. Olivia? Uh, same with me. Um, just, just LinkedIn, Olivia Vinden, LinkedIn. Very good. Well, uh, I've just changed my Twitter handle, so I'm WillWhite11FS, so on brand. Branding to the death, dude. <laughs> Sticking Emily. with that one, then. <laughs> no plans to move any time No, no, you can change it a lot, apparently. So. <laughs> um, and I'm at Emily J. Nicole on Twitter, and you can read all my stories at CityM at CityM.com slash Emily.Nicole. Very good. And you can find me over on Twitter at David Breer. What do you think of today's stories? Let us know over on Twitter at Fintech Insiders or email podcasts at 11fs.com. You can find us on all of the social medias and like these two. I don't understand it. You've got to get on Twitter. It's great. Anyway, thanks for joining us for the show. Good night. Good night.